you hear the American crow cawing in the latest nature sound? I'm excited to um, start a new series focusing on bird sounds as I'm becoming very interested in birds lately due to the Merlin Bird App by Cornell University. Um, so I'm on the website allaboutbirds.org um, that they host. It's a really user-friendly way to learn about birds. They got great photos, maps, etc. Um, so today we're going to start out with the common American crow. Um, this bird is a, they nest in trees, they're a ground forager, they're omnivores, and their habitat is usually in the open woodlands. Um, Kansas is in the year-round um, site for these birds, um, more north in Canada, a little bit of Montana, North Dakota, northern Minnesota, get the, I guess Maine looks like also, um, get into the breeding um, habitat, so we're more in just the year-round habitat. So in these segments, I'm going to talk about um, the basic, you know, basic tendencies of these birds and then also some fun facts because birds are so interesting and there are some very cool facts. <laughs> um, so let's see, crows sometimes make and use tools. Examples include a captive crow using a cup to carry water over to a bowl of dry mash, shaping a piece of wood and then sticking it into a hole in a fence post in search of food and breaking off pieces of pine cone to drop on tree climbers near a nest. They are so interesting. I know there's some people who aren't a huge fan of crows. Um, there is, um, when a crow is in a group, it is called a mob, um, or when they're attacking something as a group, it's called mobbing. <laughs> Uh, so be careful because you can get mobbed <laughs> by crows. <laughs> um, yeah, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, they usually travel in, um, packs, in pretty large packs sometimes. The, let's see, they can congregate in large numbers in winter to sleep in communal roosts. These roosts can be a few hundred up to two million crows. Some roosts have been forming in the same general area for well over a hundred years. In the last decade, some of the roots have moved, roosts have moved into urban areas where the noise and mess con conflicts with people, which makes a lot of sense why some people don't like crows. I think they're majestic. Um, this has been a fun fact that I really enjoy. The oldest recorded wild American crow was at least 17 years and five months old when it was photographed in Washington state. A captive crow in New York lived to be 59 years old. That's almost 60 years old for a bird. This is crazy. I'm learning so much about crows and birds. Um, and you can too. <laughs> uh, there is a couple bird groups in the area. I'm going to collect their information and then start sharing them with y'all in the next couple episodes, so stay tuned for that. Um, 
yeah, check out the Merlin Bird app and start listening to birds out there. Hey folks, this is Amy Glatley of the Prairie Ramblings podcast. I'm joining in with the Kansas Rural Center Presents for a series on soil health. Um, today, Charlotte will be joining me from the Kansas Rural Center. Um, we also want to welcome our special guest today, Mercedes Santiago. Mercedes, we're happy to have you here today. Hello, Amy and Charlotte. It's nice to be here. <laughs> hey. Hello. Thanks for tuning in. Um yeah, so uh, this podcast is kind of going on, you know, different things on soil health and farming and other endeavors. And what is you and your relationship with farming and agriculture in general? General. Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it is a big question. Um, so, I mean, I come from a long line of agriculturalists. Uh, my family going way back. We're all coffee bean farmers in Puerto Rico in the mountains. I grew up here in Kansas, so I was surrounded by a very different type of farming throughout my childhood. Um, like, you know, wheat, especially wheat. More like corn and soybeans as I've gotten older, but like that's quintessential Kansas, you know. Um, so I grew up around agriculture and as an adult, I've been involved in agriculture through working on various small organic farms. I was a cut flower grower for a while. Um, I worked on a farm with Amy, the host, uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, where we grew organic fruits and vegetables and flowers. Um, we supplied to local farmers markets and groceries. More recently, I've been working with the Lane Institute, which is an agriculture research nonprofit we work on developing perennial grains. So like wheat, the wheat that I grew up around is an annual and annual grains require sort of yearly disturbance of the soil. Um, there's a lot of agri a lot of trade-offs that we have for the big yield that we get from annuals. We have to trade off ecologically. Um, and so perennial grains provide this really promising alternative to something that's pretty degrading on the land. Um, so that's where I've been working in the last two years is at the Land Institute as a soil ecology technician. And then more recently, I've transitioned and I'm a greenhouse technician, or uh, I think my job title is greenhouse specialist. Um, but I've been working with the plants sort of in indoor growing environments and uh, learning how to manage them and their pests. And it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. I have so many questions and so many thoughts and I want to, you know, dive into all of it, but thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm already so impressed. So. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. getting started. Right. Right. Oh, um, well, I love to talk about agriculture. It's my jam. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I hear you there. I'm with you. Um, yeah. So our first question is what regenerative practices have you implemented on your farm? And 
I know that you recently went and saw your family farm in Puerto Rico and maybe you could touch on that and expand on it because you know the perennial grains of course in itself is a regenerative practice right Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm curious on how you've seen the you know the cultural differences and you know from a different place and a totally different bioregion to here in Kansas yeah well as far as like perennial agriculture goes perennial ag like that's been practiced widely in the tropics in places where things grow all year like that's not a new concept to those people who are growing all year round in the warmer areas of the world um so like in puerto rico uh i think most of our family land is gone now but we we did visit like a coffee farm and coffee is like a perennial uh shrub that grows in tropical regions um there are other sort of like a lot of the system is perennial. So like my dad tells stories of just wandering in the forest and being able to pick like avocados and mangoes off of the trees. Like you could just spend the whole day out there and feed yourself and then come home and, you know, grandma's making dinner. Um, right. Right. Uh, but now a lot of it did get converted. Like a lot of the land in Puerto Rico did get degraded through annual agriculture, through plantation agriculture, um, the sugar industry had a really big impact. The switch from these sort of diverse, like these are jungles that are like island jungles. Um, and they were polycultures, meaning they subsisted of many, many species. And transitioning that to a monoculture has such a devastating effect on an environment. And so you know, Puerto Rico is like many places where the effect of colonization left a mark on the land. It didn't just leave a mark on the people. The land itself is different now. And so, um, you know, coming back from a system of monoculture to a more diverse perennial polyculture system is a challenge, whether you're like growing in the mountains of Puerto Rico or in Kansas, which is a really different environment. Um, so, yeah, it's it's different. It's definitely a very different environment because like peppers, for example, are perennial all year in Mexico. You can get peppers off the shrub anytime Crazy. you want off the pepper tree. Like they're Crazy. out there. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, but grains, especially uh, like the grains we're familiar with in this like central Great Plains are really well adapted to these environments that do experience a winter. Um and so that like that period of like cold is helpful for a lot of our grain crops. So I think it's just uh, it was kind of cool to see like the agriculture of each place is sort of adapted or should be adapted to its own region. The agriculture you're going to see in the southeast United States is going to be really different from like the Pacific Northwest or even the Central Great Plains where uh, at the Land Institute, for example, our sorghum breeding program is actually housed in Georgia because that's a better environment for sorghum mm. to grow in. We do have sorghum growing here in Kansas. That's a common crop, but it is better suited to the southeastern United States. So that's where the research is happening because that's where that plant likes to be home. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective on like a greater um scale rather than just like regionality like you know like the north versus the south 
things are just going to be in general different um, mm-hmm. just based on the region. I appreciate that viewpoint. Um, Cause I forget that, you know, when you're stuck in one region, you like forget that peppers can grow perennially somewhere else. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a good thing to think about, especially when you're thinking, yeah, practices on a farm is like the plants just act differently. Yeah. Yeah. And we're think- when we're thinking about regenerative practices, like realistically, when we're talking about climate solutions, a lot of what we're not talking about is what we do have to kind of give up in order to actually live more sustainable lives, have more sustainable communities. Sort of a lot of the global food chain system, the things that we get that we could not get from somewhere else, these are our major sources of carbon emissions. These are like not necessarily the most efficient ways of us getting like the food that we need into our bodies in a way that's not also negatively impacting the planet. And there is like, there are people who do work on how can we make these sort of logistical um, puzzles more efficient. Um, But the most important thing with like regenerative practices is that it's not a one size fits all solution. Like you can't just focus on agriculture and expect everything to change around the climate crisis. And so a lot of what we have to do to be making our communities more sustainable is not just in the agricultural sector. It's manufacturing, it's transportation, um, even just healthcare. That's a big one. You know, how many more agricultural laborers would there be if you knew that you had healthcare? That would be amazing. (laughs) Truth. Truth. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially with healthcare, it's just like how many more would feel more comfortable and more safe being out there if they had access to things like healthcare, you know, who knows what you're, you know, going to be exposed to out there. Yeah. Uh, You've talked a lot about what inspires you, your experiences in agriculture, but what has made you as an adult want to continue being an agricultural worker and be involved in agriculture? I think part of it is I really just love plants. I'm really obsessed. I can't stop. It's kind of compulsive. Um, Like I study about herbs in my free time. And recently in the greenhouse, I've been learning about um, the uses of botanical oils as insecticides. So like steam, steam distilled or pressed oils from plants, which have active compounds that interact with plant pests, which is just really exciting. Um, and that's just something that like, it's hard for me to like, keep it like, okay, I'm going to study this in my work time and this in my free time because I'm a nerd and I like to study plants all the time. Um, that's a big part of what just sort of keeps me going. Um, but in terms of agriculture in general, a lot of it has to do with like this sort of feeling of, um, continuing an ancestral tradition, uh, plants have just been so important in my family for so long in our relationship with the land, even though I grew up in a very different environment than my father grew up and where my ancestors came from, our relationship with the land was one of those things that was a continuous through line. And most recently when I visited my family in Puerto Rico, I got to meet my great uncle Mateo, who has now passed on, um, but he was farming for his whole life. He inherited that trait. and we were talking and I said, you know, I also farm, like I can't help it. And he said, you know, it's in the blood. Um, And that was 
uh, a really um, <laughs> a really nice moment to have with him. Uh, just like to have that sort of validation of like this is part of our family tradition. Um, this is part of where we come from, and it's inside of us. And so, for me, like the draw to be involved in agriculture is something that like feels like it comes from within me and I am just sort of along for the ride. Um, and I didn't expect to be in agriculture because when you grow up in Kansas, you're like, you know, I'm just living out here in the sticks. Um, <laughs> but then you get older and you just, I don't know, these things sort of emerge from you. And so that connection to sort of where I come from and what has been driving a lot of people in my family for a long time, I think, is part of what drives me as well. Um, and also I think to some extent, the third thing is uh, anxiety, a sort of generational anxiety that I think almost everyone my age feels. Uh, people into their like 40s and 50s and way younger for sure, like the young folks are all concerned about the planet for very good reasons. And I think a lot of people feel called to do their part in whatever way fits for them. And so for me, being involved in agriculture is the way that I can contribute towards solutions for a healthier future. Yeah. Thank you for your time mm -hmm. in agriculture. <laughs> Thank you for your time and commitment. Yeah. Um, and yeah, to know your path within your lineage and within your family history and to, you know, keep that going because that's you know, such important work to be able to, um, yeah, interested in it, interested in, to be interested in, and to just, like, feel a strive to continue, um, because at times it can be really hard. it's important to have that, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it's hard work, so you have to have something to drive you. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's why anytime, um, there's been a couple of folks we've talked to, and Anytime they're just like, yeah, my family's been doing this. I'm just like, thank you so much for what you've been doing. Because, you know, being someone who's been out there, it's like, yeah, it may look like a beautiful, gorgeous thing that you're doing through a photo. And then the monotonous days in the field can be really hard. Um, yeah. The sweat. Mentally. I mean, yeah. there's sweat and, you know, dirt and abrasions and yeah. all sorts of stuff dust anything who knows yeah. you yeah. know weird skin reactions to <laughs> the stuff that's on the tomato leaves and yeah just like oh getting bit by a million mosquitoes animals creatures whatever yeah you're out there you are you're in the sticks of the field you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but at the same time i'm sure you've experienced this as well being out there is its own reward just like you know even if you're sweaty like just being out there if you're an earthy person that's it that's that's the peak yes and seeing the planting the seed and seeing the fruit of it whether mm -hmm. it's a fruit or a plant or a leaf or and that's what is so cool about perennials is they just they're like yeah I'm gonna I guess I'll come back you know like, I'll like, see yeah, you next sure. year <laughs> no worries I'll be back uh yeah. and that to me is really cool yeah Perennials are a fun, like, they're a fun group to work with. Yeah, because you get to see them every year. It's like an investment. And perennials themselves, they invest in the soil. Like, 
annuals, if you think about what it, the goal of an annual plant is, I'm going to make my seed and I'm going to make as much of it as I can and it's going to be as effective as possible and then I die. But right. a perennial has to come back every year, which means like that plant is investing in its sort of community the whole time, the soil community and even like the aerial community to some extent. But mostly, most of the investment is happening underground and you don't see it. Um, and that's really exciting just to think about like all this stuff is happening right under your feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. It's all under our feet. <laughs> um, I think about that too, especially like um, when I came to the Lawrence area first and I think one of the first places I ate was uh, free state mm-hmm. and they have the giant, the giant seed. You can see the giant Kernza or some wheat or something. Oh, the poster? Yes, and it's related to the Land Institute. And after all these years, I finally made the connection. And it's like, yeah, once you you can see it physically, or I've seen photos of somebody who's dug out the whole root, and it's just like, you know, there's so much beneath us that the plants are doing that is just like out of our sight. Yeah, Um, I don't know if you've seen this image, Charlotte, but it's like our most successful sort of perennial egg adopted it it's such a good image of um a wheat an annual wheat that's grow. its roots are extracted so you can see the whole plant the annual wheat next to the kernza and so the kernza roots are like five times deeper they're really you know big healthy roots um and it's sort of this image of what's happening underground with perennials and why they're worth investing in yeah and it's trying to look it up on my phone yeah there it is it's like over i mean this person is standing next to it this is kernza it looks like and it's over like it has to be over five or six feet tall yeah that's so cool and i really like to remind people of um like the flood mitigation that deep roots have Mm -hmm. i think a lot of farmers don't necessarily think about that they're just i don't know i don't think it's because they they don't care they just aren't considering that when they're bottom line mm-hmm. yeah I think a lot of it is farmers are kind of boxed into a they're boxed into a system that it's you have crop insurance so why make a risk for something that is not insured if you know for sure that you're going to be able to make a living planting wheat and soybeans every other year even if your crop fails why would you make a different decision and so I think a lot of farmers do care, but there's no economic incentive right now for adopting more regenerative agriculture practices. Uh, The support isn't there. It's not as robust. And so how do you make these solutions economically viable, especially if it means you're losing yields? That's a big one. If you're losing yields, you're losing money. Right. Charlotte, do you know what's I know that the Kansas Rural Center is pretty heavily involved in understanding and talking about the farm bill. Mm-hmm. And I know that um, the last person we talked to, Donna Pearson McGlish, Jill Elmers, who we, whom we worked with, um, they've been, they were just in Washington, D.C. to advocate for organic farming in within the farm bill. Mm-hmm. Do you have more like information on how that relates to this? or? Yeah, I think. I think we have our wish list and there are different advocacy groups. Uh, INSTAC is one of the big ones, National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Mm -hmm. Um, There are certain 
institutions that have maybe more powerful voices than one voice right. that are trying to influence our politicians into caring about uh, some of the agriculture practices that we are probably bringing up today uh, because it's just not something that's traditionally or maybe like since heavily cared about in politics. They've just had a different agenda and we're trying to kind of swing that back around and promote small farms and family farms and figure out how they can remain sustainable. So short answer long, I think um, following along with INSAC and signing their petitions and then, you know, they'll do call your people about this right now and put those call outs. Mm. Being on those lists is really important. Yeah. Um, but, you know, right now we don't have a speaker of the house. So the farm oh. bill is totally stalled and everything's totally stalled right now. So, you know, we hope whatever finally comes will be good for everyone. Yeah. But we're just kind of in waiting land right now. Right. Yep. Yeah. Having people who have those skills work on developing policy to support farmers to support small farmers to support I think like really rural communities need to be reinvested in and um a lot of there's so much poverty in rural communities and a lot of it just comes from this sort of systemic neglect of agricultural communities and agriculture in general and um there's a lot of rich promising solutions in agriculture but the support isn't there on the sort of systemic scale so there's a lot of a lot of work to be done from all angles. Absolutely. Right. And I think oh, most people also don't realize that the farm bill is mostly um, circling around our food. So the programs that support people that might be um, in a different socioeconomic situation where they can't support themselves without like WIC or something like that. Um, it's all tied up in that. It's like a, a make or break thing for a lot of people. So it's very important to pay attention to. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to say that I went on a, I don't know what to call it, a bunny trail one day, mm-hmm. and I just looked up farm bill TikTok. <laughs> There's some really good ones out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an elder millennial, so I don't usually get into TikTok land, but. Same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they make the endless scroll for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a, a good way to get fast information and Mm -hmm. current information is is that kind of thing so uh so one of the next questions we have um which i feel like we could kind of ask it and then re-ask that question um is what made you want to change the way you were farming or begin farming in this particular way um i think once i started to be aware that i was interested in agriculture um I think part of me was like, well, clearly there's perils in this current agricultural system um, that you can just see, like you can drive around and see the gullies on the landscape from soil erosion. Yeah. Um, So I think it's like, as soon as I found out about the like possibility of like, what about perennial agriculture? Having the sort of plant background already and always being like yeah perennials are cool like you plant them once and they come back every year that's fantastic um that immediately was like oh my gosh that's a great idea like what a worthwhile investment perennial agriculture um that was i think in 2015 and i 
went to TLI's sort of uh, premiere event was uh, the Prairie Festival. Um, and it used to happen every year. It's now happening um, not every year, but we'll have one again for the 50th anniversary. Um, but it's just sort of, sort of event that I think one uh, publication called it an intellectual hootenanny, which always really stuck with me. <laughs> um, but that's kind of a good description for it. There's a lot of, they bring in a lot of people who are like leaders on not just agriculture, like environmentalism, um, land stewardship, uh, and artists and like, you know, bring them all together. There's a barn dance, there's talks, like people give lectures, there's, um, art exhibits, there's sometimes there's children's activities. Um, it's a great time. And so I went in 2015 and that was what sort of introduced me to the Land Institute's work around perennial agriculture. Since then, I've learned that the Land Institute is not the only, not, we're not the only group working on perennial agriculture. We have collaborators and uh, I think I really view everyone as our collaborators rather than competitors in this industry because we're working towards the implementation of a more holistic agricultural system. Um, there's just so many reasons to be into perennial agriculture. Uh, you had mentioned earlier like that there a lot of times these deeper rooted plants are better with dealing with like floods or a sort of natural events like wind events, stuff like that. They're also way better at holding on to their nutrients in the soil. So in annual crops, about 50% of the nitrogen that's added every year gets leached out, which leads to downstream effects like eutrophication, which is when all of our ponds and waterways turn that nasty green. Blue-green algae is a result of this, just like uh, watershed degradation. It also contributes to soil erosion. Um, and so these perennial crops are way better at holding on to all those nutrients in the soil. So you're putting on less fertilizer because they don't need as much fertilizer. And you are disrupting the soil less. You're building up organic matter, which is carbon. So like every time a farmer tills, that's carbon released from the soil. It's nutrients in the form of organic matter. But when it's out in the atmosphere, it's just contributing to climate change. Um, so there's so many aspects of perennial agriculture that are just really exciting to me. Um, when the opportunity came up to work with them, I jumped at it. Uh, and so I was working at Moon on the Meadow Farm in Lawrence, and I was also working part-time as an intern at their Lawrence Field Station, which is called the Perennial Agriculture Project. Um, and that's how I started to get involved with perennial agriculture in a more formal sense. Um, but I was a fan of it starting, well, as soon as I found out about it, I was pretty jazzed about the idea. Yeah. How could you not be? Um, so for you, what has been the biggest barrier to using the methods that you have been incorporating into farming? Um, so the biggest barrier for me personally, in my journey with agriculture, has been um, like the lack of sort of uh, equity and security in the industry from a labor perspective. Um, and that's really personal to me specifically, but like, just, you know, you don't have any paid time off. Um, if you're not working, you're not getting paid. So you can't really be sick. If you're sick, you kind of have to work. Um, it's really hard to make a living. You don't get paid very well. 
um, and there's a lack of land access. So like people who would be farmers as their career are getting boxed out because they can't afford to access land and work on it. And so it puts you in the situation where you're working for other people who have land. Um, and the power dynamics there are really difficult. It's really difficult as a laborer. It's really difficult if you have any history of being from like a marginalized community. My people come from like a heavily colonized population who, you know, we have, our land has belonged to other nations for 500 years. And so that sort of relationship of power within agriculture has been really hard. And that's a difficult thing to navigate, I think, for laborers in any, any industry is those power dynamics. That's a huge barrier, I think, for people entering farming is like, how can I access land? How can I access the resources that I need to live a decent life while I'm doing what I love? Um, from a more like broader perspective is my work in perennial agriculture, our biggest barriers are that it's kind of a newer field. Um, so, you know, funding sources are becoming more prevalent, but the funding is not as uh, robust as it is for annual agriculture, especially in terms of the breeding. Um, there's a lot of a lot of money, a lot of dollars put every year into breeding of annual uh, crops, popular crops, and there's not as much support there for perennial crops. Um, interest is building and, uh, but it's slow. And so the other problem is like the other barrier is not a problem. It's a barrier, uh, is that there's not as much of a market for it. There's not as much of a demand because these are completely novel, um, crops. So there's no products that are being made with them. Like there's not sort of a, a market chain built out. And so there are colleagues that I work with who like, that's their job is, working on building out those supply chains and relationships with growers and people who want to make products out of it. Um, and it takes time to actually even get enough seed to be able to make these products. So Kernza, who's sort of our like most famous um, crop to date is uh, getting ready to be market ready. Like it's ready. It's got its legs out under it, but it's like, where, do, where does it go? And so a lot of work is being done to like create these relationships and create these uh, demands for this new product. Um, some of our other crops, for example, St. Foin, which is a perennial legume, um, and even like our perennial sorghum, there's not as much seed because the breeding process is new and we haven't bulked up seed yet. There's only so many of these plants growing and so it takes a certain amount of generations before you actually have enough seed to be ready to supply a market um and so that's a barrier too is like all of these things take time to build out and the time is uh biologically regulated so there's only so many things we can do to speed it up because we're really working in time with the earth rather than with sense of urgency or what the market wants it's really dictated on the seasons um and so yeah there's i think uh there's a lot of challenges but there's a lot of also opportunities for like this is someone's job now to like build out these markets and so right. that's really exciting to learn from um these colleagues and like their fields everyone's bringing all of their unique skills to this table and so uh it's pretty exciting to be like you're doing things that I 
don't necessarily have that skill set and I might not do, but I still think it's really important. And I'm so glad that there's someone doing it. <laughs> there's a um, place in Newton, near Newton, Kansas that sells like Kernza noodles and flour, um, which is cool um, to see like a small Kansas Kansas organization be able to to do that and um, how it can expand. And I also love that it inherently moves slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it goes, it just like goes with that like slow food movement is just like, if you want quality, proper food, it's not fast. Like it takes time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that really speaks to like the quality of the Kernza and the, you know, the nutritional value that I'm it has is like, because it takes so much time it's also yeah. like providing to the land and the soil and the microbes over time and um in that it's like you know giving back to you in a different way yeah and like plant domestication in particular takes a lot of time like we really take wheat for granted now but yeah. like that happened 10,000 years ago <laughs> people have been breeding <laughs> wheat for a really long time there are still wheat breeders that are working on wheat to this day um and so like we didn't start out producing the yields that it produces now yeah it does take time it's a slow process but you know we are making gains and so that's the exciting thing about domestication is every generation you're making gains um and so every generation we're seeing an increase in yield and they're also working they work on other desirable traits like it's better to have plants that are a little shorter so they don't fall over in the field it's better to have plants that like one of the very first things that you do in domestication is look for non-shattering plants who they don't spill their seed all over. So obviously the ones you want are the ones who keep their seed because then you can harvest it. Um, and so all of these desirable traits are also being selected for by our plant breeders. And we also have ecologists who are working on building out different cropping models so that we're not just planting monocultures, but we're planting maybe bicultures or polycultures where there are many species present in the field, whether that's by like alternating your rows or by doing things like prairie stripping um, or turning over the edges to like pollination, like seed crops, like silphium. Um, All of those things are ways to sort of increase the biodiversity in the agricultural fields. And so uh, there's a lot of different angles to take to get there, but it all takes time because to collect that data you know, over many seasons, it's not just ag, but ecology and science work takes so much time to do. Um, Having not just worked in like, I've worked in agricultural science settings, but I've also worked in sort of like microbiology laboratory settings. Um, I did like, I worked for a developmental biologist for a while. I did plant genomics work. Um, And that also takes so much time to accumulate all that data. And so everything moves so much slower than, than any of us want it to really, I think. Uh, but the work paces itself kind of. Right. Right. Yeah. It creates its own time frame, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, has um, this method gone how you expected? Were there any setbacks? And this is kind of relating to barriers um, within farming that you've worked with. 
um, and the setbacks, which I feel like you've kind of already um, talked about. Yeah. Um, maybe I guess definitely just... setbacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'd, I'd also like to hear if, and you have mentioned some, if there's any other setbacks that you've run into uh, working with perennial crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe for sure. I don't know if there's any that you haven't expected that came up. I think uh, some of the things I've mentioned, like domestication is slow, hybridization is slow, which is like what we're trying to do with perennial wheat, where you take an existing annual crop and you try to perennialize it. Um, That takes a long time and it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, It's slow to build a market, but also there's skepticism. I think there's still a lot of skepticism for like, they're called nature-based solutions to climate change or to the food crisis. Like, essentially, our work is not just about the climate. It's also about food security. And um, I think there's skepticism there about these sort of solutions that are more holistic, that maybe, like, annual agriculture sort of fits the model of consumptive capitalism that we have where you're sort of producing as much as possible uh, while also extracting quite a bit. And perennials produce this situation where they're producing a little bit less, but they're also extracting less and they're investing into the soil. And I go, I always go back to this because I come, I come from farmers. Like I, that's where I was, my entry into this work, some come from science and some come from different, different fields, but I came from farming. And so I always go back to like, we have to make these solutions economically viable for farmers. That's just like, it's the drum that I can't stop hitting. Um, and like, how, how do we actually implement solutions? So I love working with scientists and I have that part of me that is very sciencey and scientists are great at coming up with solutions. And then we're not like as a society, so great at implementing all those solutions. And so how do we make these solutions implementable. Um, that's been really eye-opening since I have just sort of entered agriculture in general is how do we actually implement the solutions? Yeah. And that's a big question that, you know, it will take time to convince everybody else to join in on, you know, (laughs) um, and see that fully being people who aren't farmers, it's hard to see that fully. Yeah. Um, so going kind of off of that, how would you like to see agriculture and food systems change, food systems overall change in the next decade? Um, I think first and foremost, making it more equitable, making uh, this to create a system where it's not, it's not so financially ruinous to be a land worker. Um, it's difficult to make a living. And I think that's, that's one of the first places to start, whether I think agricultural laborers should really be seen as public servants and sort of compensated like public servants. Um, you're growing food for your communities. That seems like a no brainer to me. How can we support these people more? That's really important. Um, there has to be more security for farmers in general to make these changes because I think there is a lot of interest and I have spoken to a lot of farmers who are like, well, yeah, I would do this, but I can't afford to have this loss. Um, and so coming up with solutions like Kernza has been approved for dual use on a CRP land. So CRP is 
uh, Conservation Reserve Program. It's the program that sort of pays farmers to sort of leave their land uncultivated to sort of build up carbon, create pollinator habitat. Like there's a lot of ecological benefits to not monocropping land. Mm -hmm. um, but you can plant Kernza on your land and you can graze that Kernza. Well, that's another revenue stream. You can also harvest it for grain on CRP land, which is kind of mind boggling because you're like, this isn't supposed to be for grain harvest, but you can actually harvest Kernza on CRP land for grain. So that creates a situation where the farmer who just had one revenue stream from CRP land now has three, maybe. Um, coming up with these solutions where farmers can sort of, uh, I don't like work within the system or changing the system so that it's more viable for farmers to make these changes because they're risks. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things in terms of what needs to happen in the next decade. Um, and just investment into nature-based solutions, not just perennial agriculture. There's a lot of sort of like adjacent um, resilient practices that land workers and land stewards and landowners can be implementing. Um, things like prescribed burns in areas where that's appropriate in the Great Plains, it definitely is. And um, where I grew up in the Flint Hills, like that area was characterized by evolving under fire regimes, natural fire regimes and implemented fire regimes by the indigenous people who lived here. That is what shaped this land. And that fire had a big impact on lands all over that are used in many sort of agricultural settings. So um, investment into those nature-based solutions, I think we really need to be looking at because, um, you know, I hear I'm around these sort of like older ecology people all the time. And a lot, one of their friends I hear is we can't engineer our way out of this. Like we're in a climate crisis. It's happening. <laughs> so now what? Uh, and investing in solutions that help minimize damage and also can create a more stable and secure food future and future in general. That's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <It's a> lot. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to continue to bring those things forward and to continue to like vouch for that, I feel like is, you know, what we all need to be working on and striving for and having those difficult conversations with, pe with people who don't see eye to eye, you know, getting everyone on the same train. Yeah. Yeah. What information would you tell a farmer or producer just beginning to transition toward regenerative practices? Um, there's resources and support out there. Uh, for farmers who are making these transitions. There's not a ton of them, but they're out there and some of them are underutilized. Um, get to know your local extension agent. They can help you get grants to like do things like, um, I remember at Moon on the Meadow, we had grants for, we got tarps for weed control from, yeah. I can't remember which, whether it was like SARE or USDA, but these are like funding bodies that they don't just fund research, they also fund farmers to implement new practices on their farms. So that's a big one is find the resources that are already out there. Um, 
be willing to take risks. And if you're in a situation where you can't take risks, that's a different conversation that's much harder. But if you can take risks, being willing to do it, even if it's going to mean some yield loss, um, finding a mentor who's done that already. There are farmers in our communities who've made that transition and who have already made mistakes and who've already learned things that are specific to your area. Um, just having people, elders, who like know the land, essentially. Um, and then finding ways to shape ag policy. So you had mentioned our our former employer, Jill Elmers. She's part of the National Farmers Union. She participates in this sort of public comment every year. She goes to Washington, D.C. and votes on uh, the National Farmers Union's own priorities about what they're going to lobby for and how they're going to contribute towards shaping ag policy. Um, that can also be local, like participating in your local ag community and building community there, because I think realistically our resilient communities come from, that strength comes from within. So building those relations where, um, in Lawrence especially, we were involved with, we were involved with a group that did gleaning. We went out to farms and like helped pick up edible food, healthy food that would have just been wasted. Um, participating in creation of uh, community meals and food pantries and composting programs. All of these are things that help build local resilience, but also people like skill sharing, you know, there are people in your towns that have, you know, the abilities with fiber craft. And like, I have so many fiber, fabric scraps that I'm like hoarding and I'm like, I don't want to do something with this, but who's the person who wants this, you know, like building those communities and getting more involved locally, I think, is one of the best things for uh, farmers who are looking to be more regenerative because investing locally is going to help your whole community overall. Um, absolutely. I mean, farmers getting involved in local community, I think it's, it goes off of how I feel on that, you know, it's difficult to farm alone and it's not easy to just like farm by yourself and that yeah, in the nature of farming, you need to have a community behind it or have like a group of people or like have a cooperative this or that in order to, you know, get to where you need to be. And it's not something um, that's easy to do on your own, you know, yeah. and having that community is so important. Yeah, I'm for sure. Uh, to see what the Community Resilience Hub in Salina uh, with Kansas Wesleyan will be doing. I'm really excited about that. That's, um, it's, I think, a partnership between, um, oh, the Rodale Institute and Kansas Wesleyan, but um, I'm, it that was announced recently, and uh, I was like, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're speaking their language as far as what communities can do for their farmers and for each other. Mm -hmm. What does this project entail? Um, I don't know that much about it yet, but um, it is the Rodale Institute is also um, a partner in perennial agriculture, and they were the first ones to sort of identify the intermediate wheatgrass germplasm, which became Kernza. Um, but it's it's not just agriculture. There's um, a sort of they do a lot in like community building and like land stewardship. Like it's uh an exciting partnership. So I'm excited to see what comes out of it and to learn more about it as it develops. 
Awesome. Yeah. I'll make sure to put a link to the Community Resilience Hub, Community Resilience Hub in the show notes. So if people want to check out what uh, Campus Wesleyan has on it so far, they can. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Merrick, do you have any, uh, anything else you would like to add or any additional lessons you want to share in your, in your time here? Um, I think just if anyone wants to sort of get more involved with like printing agriculture, we do have a civic science program. So like if you are a backyard farmer and you want to be more deeply involved, reach out to the Land Institute Civic Science Program. You can find it on our website or at landinstitute.org. Um, I don't have a website because I'm a recluse and I just like to give out the the information for the people who are officially our communicators. Um, but yeah, if you ever want to visit, you can schedule a tour and um, yeah, people will show you around the land and the crops. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else to share necessarily. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I'm glad you brought up the civic science program. Yeah. Um, oh, I do have something to share, I guess. I, yeah. It didn't fit in any of the questions well, but we were talking about soil and just like, um, it was like when you asked me about soil health, the thing that sort of got me excited um, about soils in general and just participating in this with you is I was actually talking about soil health at the Land Institute recently with some colleagues. And uh, one of the very exciting things to me about soil, or maybe not exciting, but it's a very poetic thing about soil, um, is that it's sort of built, like the, the stuff of soil that gives life is built out of the, the bodies of decayed living things. So like um, many, like in many cultures, but historically like the compost pile is the sacred place because uh, that's where the turnover happens and it's you only get like living things from the decay so uh what is called in soil is called necromass but it's essentially like dead things that have been eaten by things that died that got eaten by things that died you know like it's just stuff that got processed many times over and that's what becomes the humus and the delicious stuff that things like in the soil. Um, and so for, for me, one of the things that drives me in soils and like in this area is thinking about the land as an ancestor, um, and the relationship with the land is this is what our bodies come from. This is where we go. Uh, this is a circular relationship and we are nothing without the land. And so that is like, uh, when I think about the soil, that's what I go back to is a lot of people think about the soil as being low or the lowest thing it's degrading to soil something, you know? Um, but in my mind, soil is like a, a very sacred thing as well. This is, this is the birthplace. This is where life comes from. And that, you know, even if we walk on it, it's still the highest thing. That's, that's the, the cradle. Thanks everyone for joining us again on this episode. Um, I am Amy Latley and I've been joined today by Charlotte of the Canvas Rural Center as well as Mercedes Santiago, plant extraordinaire. Um, please rate and review this show on any podcast app that you listen to. Um, 
it helps us get more um, transparency on the feeds. Um, you can also find the Kansas Rural Center on social media um, to check in with what other episodes we're doing and other projects that we work on that were probably mentioned here. Um, and we are at Kansas Rural Center on Instagram as well as KansasRuralCenter.org. Um, you can keep up with my podcast, Prairie Ramblings, on Instagram at Prairie Ramblings Podcast on there. Um, and yeah, the Kansas Rural Center has a fun conference coming up. Um, it is hosted um, in November on November 10th and 11th. There are scholarships available for students in LGBTQ plus and BIPOC community members, um, and that's going to be in Topeka. Kansas um, on November 10th and 11th. Um, me and Charlotte will be there. It's mm-hmm. going to be fun. And yeah, there's some fun events going on there. So yeah, thanks for tuning in today and we'll see you on the next time. <laughs>